Father, we do thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your son and that your mercies are renewed to us every morning. We need it. We thank you for the gift of your spirit that rests on us, that, that abides in us, that gives us wisdom and draws our hearts again and again to the beauties of Jesus. And so we ask that your spirit be working in us this morning as we study the next passage that would be challenged and encouraged to prize Jesus more, love him more, and to imitate him, reflect him rightly in a darkened world. We thank you for this time together. Make it fruitful for us and glorifying to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Acts 19. And last time, when we finished up... um, Chapter 18, we got to look at Apollos, the author of Hebrews, and how God was shaping him and using him in Ephesus as well as sending him on to Corinth. So we kind of went through that. Um, What was the issue, real quick, just because it feeds into what we're talking about today, what was the issue that that, that Luke drew out with with Apollos? Uh, He needed to be corrected. Why? Do you remember? Because he only knew about the gospel from John. He only knew about the he only knew the baptist uh, the baptism of John. What else was going on there though? What, we, who instructed him? It's not Aquila and Priscilla. It was Aquila and Priscilla. It's exactly who it was. Prissa, Priscilla. We had, had talked about the those names, but anyway. So yes. Yeah, so they pulled him aside. They instructed him more fully in who Jesus is, what he has done, and sent him on his merry way uh, to to preach. And he was apparently very bold preacher among the Jews uh, in Ephesus and then felt drawn to, to uh, Corinth. And so while he is traveling to Corinth, while he's in Corinth, Paul is continuing his tour through established churches, strengthening them from his first and second missionary journeys. And our, our passage this morning introduces Paul uh, having an extensive stay in Ephesus. This is his third missionary journey and it really resides in Ephesus. He's there for a while. And he uses it as a base of operations to move out into Asia Minor from there. So um, that's his standard motif of what he wanted to do. It's what he did in Corinth. He was finally able to do it without getting kicked out. Um, And so we're seeing him do that in Ephesus here in chapter 19. In Paul's time, just a little background on Ephesus. Ephesus was the most populated city in Asia Minor. It had a long history. It had been... Uh, the historians tell us that it, there was a settlement at Ephesus, it's port town, uh, since the second century, uh, second century, second, well, 2,000 years, the second millennium, there we go. I'm sorry, I'm thinking eschatology. The second millennium BC. Um, I, I'm a second millennialist. Anyway, um, it, it seems to have been kind of a cult center for that area, that region. Initially, they tell us that Ephesus was built out in the sea. And because of the erosion of the land and all that, they had to move it inland. But it's, it's got a, a great commerce center. It's a, it's a trade uh, hub, basically, for that region of the world. It was a cult center for pagan worship of the mother goddess of the region. And whenever the Greeks came in and conquered uh, the Ionian Greeks, a subset of the Greeks, came and conquered Ephesus in 1044 BC, they took over the cult worship and just renamed it Artemis, right? So that, and that was the, the um, 
standard for Ephesus from that point forward was a center for the worship of Artemis of the Greeks. In subsequent centuries, Ephesus is going to be conquered by four other foreign powers, including the Persians, Philip the Great, and the Seleucid kings that followed Philip the Great. Finally, um, there's a Roman power that's felt. I think that's some client kings in like 190 BC, but ultimately it was deeded over by the last king of Ephesus. Deeded over. This is his will. Here's my city, Rome. Uh, in 133 BC. So by the time Paul walks through the gate at Ephesus, he's walking into a commercial and political power in the Roman Empire. There, it is the seat of power in Asia Minor, um, and it's the seat of the Roman proconsul for that region. So archaeological finds in Ephesus include the ruins of the Temple of Artemis, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Another eight but we'll just say seven. Were there eight? Seven. There's seven. Yeah, there's seven. The eighth one, the eighth one was that we have the history of the ancient world. That's what it is. Okay. So also unearthed is an amphitheater that was built by Nero in Paul's day, which could hold about 24,000 people, which is a pretty big amphitheater. I mean, so you've got cultural center, you've got um, the games, and you've got Artemis worship, as well as political power and all of that. Yeah. How many people were in Ephesus? 250,000. It's a pretty large city. It's Tyler uh, with the surrounding cities feeding in. So it's, it's pretty large for the ancient world. It's not Houston, but it's, it's pretty large for ancient world. Um, it's a vibrant port city. So, I mean, you look at Ephesus, it's ideal for church planning in the region. He's got a hub here. You have a concentration of people that you can train and send out pastors in the region all around. So that, and that's exactly what Paul does in Ephesus. All right, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Let's stop there for now. All right, so verse 1 completes that travel narrative that we saw discussed uh, in, in, that we discussed in, in chapter 1823. So the region that he passes through here would be the region that eventually we would get letters out of. Colossae would be there. So Laodicea, we remember that from Revelation, right? Uh, Hierapolis would be another church that would be established. But all of this is, is fruit that will take place from his mission in Ephesus. He's passing through there, not stopping witnessing to those towns. He's just traveling quickly to get back to Ephesus. He told him he'd return, right? So Colossians um, 1.7 seems to indicate that those churches that I mentioned were actually established by a church planner Paul trained called Epaphras. Uh, you see a, a, a comment there that, you know, he was... <laughs> 
concerned about the churches. He loved the churches. And Epaphras, my co-worker, you know, speaks well of you, that kind of thing. So you see uh, this, the idea then that Paul is training pastors to go out into these regions. And that just confirms kind of what we're thinking. So when Paul does get to Ephesus, who does he meet? Who does it say? Disciples. Uh, incidentally, how many? Okay, don't don't make a big deal out of that. <laughs> some guys make a big oh, it's twelve disciples. But no, sometimes twelve is just how many there are. I mean, it just we don't have to. Yeah, so just kind of rest there. Let's not make a big deal on the numbers, but it is. Why does he call them disciples? Are these Christians? Not yet. Not yet. But notice this. Luke sets it up. These are disciples of John. What was John about? The precursor to Christ. The precursor. He preached, repent, he preached repentance. Prepare the way of the Lord. Right? For Luke, and we'll see this as it plays out in the passage, for Luke to be a disciple of John, truly a complete disciple of John, is one who confesses Christ. Yes. Because that's where John was going. What's the issue here? They didn't receive the Holy Spirit? Or what does it say? They didn't even know. That. Now, is that true? They didn't even know there's a Holy Spirit. Is that true? Based on the teaching of John, should they have known about the Holy Spirit? Probably. Probably? They should have. They should have. Why? Boy, yes, why? What? Okay, because there was that evidence of the Holy Spirit there. The Trinity, that great thing you can use on your oneness Pentecostal friends. There's that picture of the Father speaking, the Spirit coming down like a dove, and the Son there, and He's not doing a ventriloquist act. We got this whole three persons of the Trinity represented in the baptism of Jesus. Yes, there's that. What else? How else do we know that John preached and, and told his disciples about the Holy Spirit? I baptize you with water. Right? Didn't he say this? Yes. And he did it like this. I baptize you with water, but the one who's coming after me, whose sandals I'm not worthy to tie, will baptize you in what? The Holy Spirit and fire, right? So they know about the Holy Spirit. Not only that, they're probably Jews. And the Old Testament is replete with references to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit fell upon Saul and he prophesied so that they said, is Saul also among the prophets? You know, remember that, that kind of stuff. The, the, Isaiah references the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel references the Holy Spirit. So there's plenty of references in the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit. What are they talking about? We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Ah, the Spirit hasn't come yet. John said it was coming. Has it come? We didn't even know that it's come. Um, well, they not not in Jerusalem, right? Not on Facebook. You're killing me. You're killing me. All right, because everything on Facebook is trustworthy. Um, the um, it, this is an important passage. Luke, Luke, is, Luke is bringing this out for a reason. We find evidence of groups claiming that their founder is John the Baptist well into the 4th century. 
So it's like the church is still trying to is still in the process of finding these little groups of John the Baptist disciples. Hey, the one promised by John has come, right? And that's what Luke is bringing this out. Paul runs into these guys here in Ephesus and says, "Have you been? Do you know the Holy Spirit? Have you have you experienced the Holy Spirit? Is He here with you?" Um, why is that a significant question for him to ask? Have you received the Holy Spirit? Why is that a distinctive? Why not, have you believed in Jesus? They're already believing the promise of Jesus. They're believing the promise of the Messiah, <laughs> right? What is the question entailing? We're we looking for some second blessing here for the... Are you, are you saved? Are you sealed? Are you... What's the mark of a Christian? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwelling in the believer, right? Um, the significance, the, the significant evidence of belief in Christ is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And, and how do we see that evidence in the New Testament so far? What, what does that look like? We've seen again and again Luke referenced the Holy Spirit working in people in various ways. How does it look? One is what we see here. This, this, this speaking in tongues, this whatever that is, I have my theories, but that, that's the language that's used and prophesying, which is preaching and foretelling at this time, that kind of thing. What else do we see? How is Lydia shown to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Changed life, giving, generosity. Overabundant generosity, right? She was opened her house to believers, gave to Paul, supported his ministry. <clears throat> what else? What else do we see? How was Peter, who denied Christ three times, transformed and gave evidence of the Holy Spirit? He was given boldness, right? These are the, the signs that we see in, in Luke's record of how the church is influenced and affected by the Holy Spirit. There's, there's this ecstatic stuff sort of, maybe. There's a, certainly a, 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 um, a sign gift is given there. There's boldness there. There's generosity where this stuff is not mine, it's his, let me use it for the church there. And so he's, the literal translation here in the ESV, NIV, probably NASB too, I didn't check it, but it says, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. That's a word-for-word -word translation of the Greek. And so, if they're saying that, what they're talking about is that they don't know that the Messiah has come. What do you mean? The stuff that's been promised. They, they hadn't heard about Pentecost. They hadn't heard about the life of Christ and, and, and all of the... How is that different than Apollos? He was a disciple of John. He was already a believer. How do we know that? Because he wasn't rebaptized. He wasn't rebaptized, but how do we know why he wasn't rebaptized? Did Aquila and Priscilla just drop the ball there? They talked. They talked to him, and how did they talk to him? I mean, he, he probably proclaimed proclaimed Christ. That he, it says he's preaching Christ. He was preaching Christ accurately. Yeah. It says. And so that's how we know he had already been, and it says he had already been instructed in the way. And so we know that he had already received the information that these guys, isolated as they are from the body of Christ, had not received. Here is the Messiah that's promised he's come. John's ministry 
was a preparatory ministry, right? His, his repentance that he preached was to make way for the coming of the Messiah. And that proclamation of John had been fulfilled in Jesus, but they didn't know it. They had not heard that the Spirit had been poured out. They were unaware of Pentecost. They were unaware, unaware of what had happened with the Samaritans. They were unaware of what had happened with Cornelius and the Holy Spirit pouring out in those regions. They didn't know all this. So repentance is turning away from what we falsely worship, right? I, I, I love uh, my lust, and so I worship this to fulfill the lust. I love, my, uh, I love my feeling like I'm, I'm, I'm justified in my anger, so I watch a bunch of Rambo movies and stay vengeful all the time. You know, whatever. I, I, you, it's a false worship. Sin is a false worship. And so um, that preparatory work is to turn away from sin, but they had nothing to turn to. So where does that leave you? A constant state of repentance but no growth because I have nothing to turn to I don't know who satisfies so, so would, you, would you say that they were would you say that they were not justified yet I would because justification is believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved right. right so they're repenting they realize before God I'm a sinner and I'm sorry for my sin but there's no completion of that with right. I trust Jesus instead of the sin or the, or the, the, the false God that I'm worshiping. That, that's where they are. They knew nothing of the baptism in the name of Jesus. And this isn't a technical argument that Paul is making. He's not saying, oh, you were baptized in John's name. I'm scratching the air. You were baptized in John's name. Let me, <laughs> let me it's itchy sometimes. It, let me... Uh, let me baptize you in Jesus' name to make it official. The, the magic words, hody, 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 blah, there you are. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about John's baptism is one of prep work, heart work. The, Jesus is the focus of where we should go with the repentance. So if repentance is turning away from what we falsely worship, what remains is to turn to faith in whom deserves true worship. That is, to be a true disciple of John was to confess Jesus. And verse 4 is the key here. Look at verse 4. He says to them, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. He's not complete. That is, Jesus. Jesus is complete. And that's, where, and that's what he's arguing to them. Um, but think about the fundamental issue here. Who was John the Baptist? He's a rock star. I mean, he, he has his own convention every year, the John the Baptist convention. You know, he, he, is, he is together for the gospel. I mean, he, he's the rock star, right? He, he's testified... Of by the prophets as one crying in the wilderness make way, make straight the paths of the Lord. I mean, he's got prophet cred in him. Micah talks about, uh, or Malachi says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord come. And that's, those are some great credentials. If I were handing out a CV and, I, and, and I'm, you know, here's my, my, my credentials for this job as prophet. Um, I'm called Elijah by Malachi in the Old Testament. 
high up. If you're going to be under the baptism of somebody, that's the guy to be under, right? Even Jesus said of him, there is no prophet greater who's been born among women than John the Baptist. But what does he go on to say? Even the least in the kingdom is greater than him. Why? Because the least in the kingdom completes it. Trust in Jesus. It's focused on who he is. We can have repentance. We can have feeling sorry about our sin. We can, we can uh, repent uh, and, uh, and study the creeds. We can repent and, and study the Puritans, which are good things to do. I don't want to minimize that. But if we're not repenting and believing on who Jesus is and what he's done, it's a circle. We're not getting anywhere. I'm not growing looking more like him if my worship, my devotion is not to Jesus. And that's the deficiency here with the disciples of John. They're not going where they need to go here. The question about these disciples of John, because it seems like they they didn't know that that Jesus was the Christ. Mm -hmm. But John, while he was on the earth, proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ. Right. If they're disciples of John, I don't understand how they wouldn't know that Christ was there. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I think what's going on is they're disciples of John by the testimony of a disciple of John. So they may, may not have been there with John right. at the time. Similar to what's going on with, with Paul. Right. So they, didn't, they weren't aware of Jesus. They weren't aware of what went on in Jerusalem because they're off in Ephesus and that region. Guys from John may have gone out after he was beheaded and, you know, or, or before then. Yeah. So, um, so the, the, the point that, that we can draw from this is that we have to be about turning to Jesus every day, pleading with the Holy Spirit to keep our affections for him paramount in our lives. If we're just locked in a, bad, in a cycle of, I did bad stuff and I'm sorry, and not landing on who Jesus is and how I need to prize him, we're not going to kill the sin in the heart. We're not replacing it. Jesus talks about, you know, you kick the demon out of the guy, and if you don't replace it with something, it comes back seven times stronger. I think that principle is the same with sin. If we're not feasting on who Jesus is, the stuff that was attractive that we kicked out, well, let's just go back to that and we'll serve it all the more. We have to be about filling our hearts with Christ. Um, we get nowhere otherwise in conquering sin. This is the pursuit of holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's a pursuit of Christ, and these disciples of John begin their journey here. We've talked about why that didn't have to happen with Apollos. Um, how, what, what do we see about how well John had prepared these disciples? How, I mean, how quickly did they repent and trust Jesus? Very quickly. Very quickly. He'd done his prep work. You know, his disciples had done the, the prep work. They were repentant, their hearts were, their hearts were ready, and they immediately responded to the gospel. Is there something significant, here we go, is there something significant about Paul laying his hands on them after they're baptized in the name of Jesus? Probably. Okay. Well, it kind of reminds me of what we saw in Leviticus for in, in a lot of the sacrifices and laying the hands on the Holy Okay. Yeah. Uh, that kind of transference. Yeah, uh, I, I, think, I think there's some of that symbolism here. This is the only time we see it, by the way, 
in the New Testament, or, or at least in Acts, uh, where this is happening after the baptism, the water baptism, and then there's this spirit uh, display after after he lays hands on. I wouldn't make a theology out of this, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Let's not do a thing where this is the one time, so this is how we always do it. The way the Holy Spirit comes and acts is at various times in various ways. And we, and we can't pigeonhole, if I lay hands on you, you're going to have this thing. That's, that's assuming too much. Well, I think also apostolic uh, spiritual gifts are, are different from spiritual giftings that we have today. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is pre-New yeah. Testament closing right. gifts. And we're about to see some crazy town here in a minute. Right. Yeah, because earlier in Acts, it says that um, uh, uh, some people were baptized and they went their hands on them and then they received the Holy Spirit after the baptism. So it's... It's before, and I mean, it comes in all... I mean, right. Hands, no hands... Yeah. Before after, before after baptism, it doesn't. There's not there's not a liturgy on that level at this point, um, and I and I really I think you don't really see kind of the set formula of stuff until like mid to late second third century yeah. on some of this stuff. It, it's not that formulaic, and and it really it shouldn't be. That's not what does it. <laughs> it's the it's the sovereign work of God in the heart. All right, let's look at Crazy Town. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing crazy miracles, extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even the handkerchiefs and, or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. What is going on there? <laughs> Put your hand on the TV. Is that what's going on there? <clears throat> Let's start first with the beginning of it. Where does his witness begin in Ephesus after his inner, inner uh, discussion with the, with John? Why why is it at the synagogue again? I mean, is this it always starts there. The Jew first and the Greek, right? We've, low hanging fruit. Low hanging fruit. They're they're also familiar with. They got the same worldview. Less to explain. Right. You 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 start from the same center. The scripture is authoritative. Let's go from there. Um, had he been here before, this synagogue in Ephesus? Probably. I think so. Yes. He passed through. Right. Talked to them a little bit. Remember, they were kind of receptive. This one where, like, hey, you should stay. He should, yeah, he said, no, I want to get back to, I want to get to the, the, the Passover in, in Judea. And he did. But he came back. He comes back for a longer presentation of Christ. How long did the debate in the synagogue go until he got kicked out? Three months. Three months. That's pretty good, right? That, that's Yeah, I mean, he had like weeks with the other places. Yeah. So three months is a pretty decent time. People seem to be more receptive of what's going on there. They've given it a fair shake. There's some who are believing, 
and there are some who are on the fence, and there are some who are violently opposed to what he's doing. What are the odds? Well, one in three. So, you have this continued thing going on with the Jews, a core set of Jews, gets hardened in their unbelief and opposes him so much that they're speaking slanderously about the way to the congregation. So what does Paul do? He goes somewhere else. Where does he go? Tyrannus. That's kind of weird. We don't know who Tyrannus is. We have no context for who this guy is. He's got a hall. He may have owned the building. He may be the landlord of the building. Paul rented out. I don't know. They took up an offering. Um, or he was a teacher and had a hall. And Paul used it. The, the smart guys tell us that they probably used it between the hours of 10 and 3, which were the hot period of the day of the work. So when Paul stops making tents, he goes and teaches at Tyrannus Hall. And they, because the Athenians would stop, or the Athenians, the Ephesians would stop kind of midday and, and take a siesta, I think. And so Paul would use the time to, anyway, I don't know if that's some, true, but that's kind of what they say. Yeah, some manuscripts add uh, from the 5th hour to the 10th. Right, the Western text, the Latin text do. 11 to 4, 10 to 3, whatever, you know. Depends, it's 5 o'clock somewhere. All right, so you have a period of time where they're, the city naturally shuts down. It's kind of like Tyler at lunch. You know, no work happens from 11.30 to 1.30 to 2 in Tyler, Texas, because everybody goes to Torchies or someplace and talks till you know, two-hour lunches. It's amazing. Uh, all right. So... That tells you that there's a great receptiveness about the of the gospel from the Jews in Ephesus. Some believe, some get hardened in their unbelief. Um, notice here that Paul doesn't just dust off his robes again to these Jews in Ephesus. He had done that other places where there was a concerted effort. Why wouldn't he do that? You think? There's people that are. Yeah, there are Jews coming. It's like you know, a pretty good number of them are believing. He's not going to, and he continues to witness to Jews in the hall of Tyrannus. What's the benefit of doing it outside of the synagogue? You get Gentiles. It's an open hall. It's open air preaching in the hall. Um, you get Gentiles coming in. This, um, incidentally, the the Jews that oppose him here in Ephesus, there is a, a consensus among the smart guys that. These are the same Asian Jews that come against him in Jerusalem. Chapter 21, when we get there, when he goes back to Jerusalem, these are the ones that stir up the mob in Jerusalem. Same, same kind of guy. Uh, same kind of guys. All right, so let's get to it. Luke also tells us it, it got a little crazy there in Ephesus. How does he characterize these miracles that are going on? They're extraordinary. Is that normative? Should we expect that every day? No. No. Extraordinary by its nature means it ain't natural or common, right? What do we know about Ephesus so far, about the culture of the town from a religious standpoint? Where are they? We talked about a little bit earlier. earlier. They're cult-centered. There's a lot of mysticism there. There's a lot of pagan worship there. And yet you've got this thing that God does through Paul. Paul's preaching in the heat of the day. The hall of Tyrannus wipes his head, puts it down, they take it, and they go take it to somebody else who's sick, and, and, and they get well. Notice he doesn't say he charged for it. I just want to throw that in there. He didn't charge for the hanky. So, so he didn't charge for the apron. <laughs> right. So, so, so you're saying that we shouldn't buy the, the handkerchiefs that we 
lay on. I'm saying generally the things that are at the front of the store in Lifeway that, that, that are the, like the add-ons don't go there. You don't need the oil. I'm just going to throw that out there. All right. It's okay. Uh, Amazon is a wonderful thing. not listen to the, to the television ads? Probably not, a, not helpful. So just not helpful. Um, we see here a large presence of occult practice in, in Ephesus. Uh, and you have these people taking sweatbands and aprons that are used to wipe perspiration and touching the sick and they're healed. My view here, this is just, this is me, is that God's accommodating the culture there. These are mystical people. And, he, and, and, and the result of this is ultimately, we'll see this later on in the chapter, is that they reject uh, pagan worship. The whole region hears the gospel. And so many are converted that you see the guilds who make the idols in, in Ephesus freak out. The business is down because they're rejecting the pagan worship in such droves. So I, I see this as more of an accommodation of God to, to attract the minds of the people to, I'm more powerful than Artemis. Watch this. And it it, it does the thing that we see happen with miracles every time in Acts. It, 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 it displays, confirms the power of God and the truth of the gospel. That's what the miracles are for. They're not just the end and, and be all of themselves. They're not for, you know, making awesome videos where you have let the bodies hit the floor in the background as you slaying people. I mean, this is, this is, that's not what's going on. It's for the purpose of sharing who Jesus is and what he's done. Um, what Luke doesn't go, what Luke doesn't go into here is the mundane work that we see in the letters of Paul. During this time, he had to make at least one uncomfortable trip to Corinth. We see in 2 Corinthians two. Uh, he had he was he was in the process of gathering an offering for the church at Jerusalem, who's under severe persecution at this time. He's doing the administrative work there. He's ongoing teaching ongoing discipleship, training pastors to go out. All of this is going on day after day. Um, incidentally, we see the, the collection for relief from the church in Jerusalem in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4. It kind of gives the... And from that, we get the, the New Testament pattern for giving. So, um, for your study this week, I want you to pound on that text and find me 10% tithe, and we'll talk about it later. I'm sure that'll be a lively discussion. Um, overall, there's a lot going on that is not extraordinary miracle. But it's quite a miracle. What's going on here, day after day in Ephesus, is a display of Paul's faithfulness to the gospel. Um, he's faithful there, there's faithfulness of other believers around him to love Jesus more than their offense, more than their favorite preachers. I'm of Paulus, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. And yet that gets dealt with. They're called to repentance there. That's an issue that is repented of. They're, they're, they're called to faithfulness to love Jesus more than their customs. But we're the town of Artemis. They're called to love Jesus more than their pride. You see that with Apollos being willing to submit to instruction from an old, a couple of old people. 
right? And you see the faithfulness of Paul to, to love and challenge and instruct them in spite of their unfaithfulness to seek Jesus in all things sometimes. That's the miraculousness of the Christian life. It's faithfulness. We're not, we're not naturally faithful people. Um, are we faithful in the mundane? Are we repenting, believing, persevering, and overcoming? That sounds familiar. That's not sexy. But it is miraculous. Faithfulness in this is nothing less than an extraordinary miracle. That's the, that's the Christian life. It's not the put your hands on TV. It's when my kid wakes me up at 2 a.m. crying, and I don't know what the problem is because they can't tell me what the problem is, <clears throat> do I despair <laughs> from my lack of sleep and my lack of, you know, when, you know, when things are pressuring me at work and I don't know what's going on and am I trusting in Jesus in the midst of uncertainty? That's extraordinary. That's miraculous. That's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in us. And if we don't see that, then we repent, we turn to Jesus, we persevere in our trusting of Him, and we overcome the anxiety, we overcome the depression, we overcome the fear, we overcome the anger, we overcome the, the, the feeling of, of isolation sometimes. Because we're trusting Him. All right. That's all I have for you this morning. What, any questions, comments? Fruit to be thrown. Handkerchiefs, Handkerchiefs will not be sold. I ain't sweating it here at 70 degrees. I could only get Oh my gosh. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. No. So, uh, the disciples of John talks. We talked about uh, John, uh, they did prep work and they were ready to receive the gospel. Mm -hmm. and I think it's worth noting that uh, God doesn't just leave them hanging. Right. Uh, he starts the work in them yeah. and he completes it. Yeah. Like it. And how does he complete it? Well, he... He brings someone in there to tell them. He brings the means of Paul preaching the gospel. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. How, how will they hear unless someone tells them? Sure. Uh, is that Romans 10, right? He goes on this whole thing of there's prep work. There's election going on to the prep work in Romans 9. How does he complete it? He sends preachers. Yeah. We can go on longer, I'm sure. Anything else? Grant's raising an eyebrow, but I know he's not going to say something because he wants to go play drums. All right, I'm going to go and pray. <laughs> we'll be done. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you remind us again and again that you call us to faithfulness. You're not calling us to extraordinary, overt, crazy town miracles 
you call us to love Jesus and to look like Him. And that's um, something that takes place in everyday life. Changing diapers at 2 a.m., uh, budgeting for a fiscal year at a business, how we do that faithfully with our employees, with, with work that we're given, in the life of the church, how are we faithful? Lord, I pray that you um, impress upon us that in even, even in these mundane things, you are calling us to display the beauties of Christ, what He's done and who He is to the world, how we love one another, how we serve one another. Those are not glamorous things. Those aren't viral YouTube videos waiting to happen. It's the daily faithfulness that you call us to that is the extraordinary miracle, that we continue to love Jesus and to repent, believe, persevere, and overcome. I pray that you warm our hearts again to that cycle of growth in Christ, the pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of holiness, because we turn from sin and worship the one who is worthy of worship, and that's Christ alone. Thank you for him, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, sir.